0: What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Khanna, That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here, with the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play whereas the long ad read you will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single thursday and i'm eternally grateful for their support but more on that after the show i need to remember how to start these episodes what is up folks it is great to be back for another solo episode of season two the first solo episode of season two of the emulsion podcast We are live on Instagram right now. I'm going to just do it until either the limit gets hit or until my phone dies, because I have not been great about uh, charging my phone lately. I'm not sure what is up with that, but I've got a couple of beverages in front of me. This is the tail end of a glass of cold brew. It's getting to be that point in the day when it's too late for me to be drinking cold brew, but that's okay. Uh, And then I also have a glass, a glass, a can of uh, Passion Fruit LaCroix. Those are our two beverages for the day. So I need to ask for a little bit of patience as I did in episode 100 with these new formats because... I was able to write this this show specifically in about 90 minutes, like two hours. I had anticipated Joe being able to come and help me shoot this, but uh, for reasons that we won't speak about, he is unable to be here today. So I'm rolling solo today. This is a true solo, solo uh, episode today. But what I did, which is a little bit different for those of you that uh, enjoy this kind of behind the scenes of how I produce this show, is I normally write out every single word. I normally get it so that I'm essentially writing small articles that go along with each and every single industry story, and then I will read that script to you folks, but this time I just did bullet points. I took kind of a page from the book of a guy named Craig Adams, who, when he does his solo podcasts that are effectively update shows for himself, he just reads he has bullet points and he elaborates on those bullet points. so I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to see if I can uh, keep up the pace with all this. I also am using a app called Notion. Which, for those of you that don't know, it's kind of like a competitor to Evernote. I'm testing it out with content calendar stuff for Joe and I. And it's been really valuable for me to keep track of my thoughts, uh, to-do lists, calendars, uh, different tasks. I'm trying to switch to it from Trello for prep list stuff as well. For those of you that are like kitchen productivity nerds, I think Notion, it's N-O-T-I-O-N, Is a great free app that I've really been enjoying. So hopefully, if everything goes well, this will uh, be the new format uh, for these kinds of things. So for an update from everybody from episode 100, we're not doing headlines anymore. I'm just uh, doing stories. I'm still going to include direct answer at the end for those of you that really liked that segment of the show. And we'll just see with, um, you know, different people on Instagram with me being able to go live. I would love to be able to include your thoughts as you're following along as I cover these stories. There's a couple articles that I had to cut today unfortunately because I wanted to keep this episode a little bit shorter. I want to keep the the solo episodes closer to like the 30 to 40 minute length. We'll see uh how I do at that job, but I think for the most part I'm covering everything I want to cover. There's still a couple leftover things that I will cover in episode 104 or 103 depending on how that flow goes. So let's start with this story. The I'm sure most of you have seen it. Magnus Nielsen is closing And that was uh, kind of a shock to to, to most people. I don't think that it was um, based on who he is as a person. I think it doesn't not make sense. I think that because he chose to have his restaurant in the middle of nowhere, it was kind of an interesting uh, uh, point to it all. Uh, He says, quote, restaurants have become a competitive sport. At least that's what uh, the article says. And uh, it's a great interview from Rob Report. Quote, have you noticed the rise of diners who care more about saying they've eaten somewhere than actually eating there? And Magnus saying, yes, it terrifies me. I think it's sad. The only reason you should want to go to a restaurant is to have a good time. And then Rob Report asking, what are they doing instead? And then Magnus saying, I see people who are so obsessed with documenting the experience and then don't have the experience at all. I think it's such a silly thing to go to a restaurant just to post a picture on social media. And I wanted to cover this point, one, to kind of break the news to you folks that, you know, Favakin is indeed closing this kind of prolific restaurant. I'm staring at the cookbook that's on my shelf right now because I got so much inspiration from reading that and, and his mindset and his philosophy. And I've had friends who have staged there who have had great and very uh, intense experiences. My chef in Norway did the cookbook tour with Magnus when he came to the U.S. on his uh, new Nordic cookbook And I just think that he will go down as one of the gentlemen for our generation that really did something special when, you know, the idea of opening a place in the middle of nowhere was reserved for chefs in France and for someone to do it in Sweden was, you know, kind of unheard of at the time. And I think that just the way that he took all of his experience and didn't necessarily throw it by the wayside. He took it and built upon it uh, for his own personal philosophy. I think that that is 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 great and amazing. I think that uh, for the most part, we will see him come back and do something else that's special. I don't think this is the end of of this chef, uh, but I think that he it it, it catches up on you. I don't know, does anybody have anything uh, to say on it? I would I would really love uh, peop- everybody's comments here uh, to what your thoughts are on, on Favikin closing. If anybody has Staj there and knows a little bit more why or what is going on, I think that would also be great. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more from Rob Report as opposed to focusing so much on social media, but, uh, you know... The, the, there there are people who are like that who are the the, the want to check off the world's 50 best list and that's the only thing that they care about and then there's the people who will go and just experience it because it is so off the it, it is so strange to see a chef doing something like that and they just want to see what it's all about Magnus says the only reason why anyone should work in hospitality the way that I do in these types of restaurants is because you really love the act of giving hospitality to people and seeing how they interact with it how they enjoy it and how it affects them if that aspect is no longer there, no one is going to want to do it anymore, and it's going to disappear. We're just going to be filled with restaurants who cater only to that crowd. And I think this piggybacks off of that other idea that certain chefs want to give back their Michelin stars because it era- it attracts the wrong type of clientele. And we're going to get into that in another story that we cover today. But I think the idea of who are you cooking for, and I think Massimo, there's a story that we're going to cover on Massimo later on that uh, that that discusses who you're cooking for and how certain restaurants and certain menus are only for certain people. And I think that that's an interesting point to, to go on. I, I'm almost positive LA Times, if I can do a quick search here, um, because LA Times did uh, get the LA Times Magnus. He had one, um, there we go. He had one article uh, come out. Yep, there it is the story behind why Magnus Nilsson is closing Favikin. I will include this all uh, in the show notes for everybody to listen. This is always available on justincana.com slash podcast. Uh, He says, quote, I'm not leaving because I'm discontent with the restaurant. I'm just leaving because I'm done with it because I want to do other things. I think that's pretty amazing, pretty uh, brave to do as a chef, especially when you get that kind of reputation. Um, But yeah, it gives a great profile of the location of the restaurant, the way that the chefs work, and... I, I guess everybody everybody just has has that what's next question to anybody who announces that they're doing a new project but I think that it's 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 fascinating to see uh, someone with his caliber make that kind of a decision so. That's all I have to say there. If you want to get into the conversation in the comments, I'm also making a mental note for myself that I need to get better myself at uh, tweeting these stories as they come out. The reason that this is very much so old news for some of you is because I did take that kind of month of not uploading a podcast, and so some of these <laughs> articles are from May, which is crazy that it's almost August and I'm covering stories from May, but that is that is how it is. And so we will get to that point uh, where I get all the way caught up and I can be t- live tweeting stories as they come out, get your folks' comments and then uh, build on them. But I just, this is kind of a rapid fire. Uh, make sure that I cover everything that has been uh, getting d- d- pushed out as news. Uh, there is a great video that I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, it's from a YouTube channel called Elite Life, they have 14,000 subscribers on YouTube. And he posted a video uh, in May about uh, his meal at Alain Ducasse's Le Louis the 9th? Is that? No, the 15th. (laughs) Yes, my Roman numerals are bad. But yeah, like I said, it got 1.23 million views, which is amazing. And as someone... This is great because it's also piggybacking off of Magnus's point on posting your meals on social media. I think that uh, it does very much so look like a video that he shot on his phone of and then he overlaid text on it in post did a little bit of translating from the French that the, the service staff was speaking, but it's a uh, you know, it's just a documentation of this three Michelin star, very opulent meal, which I think is amazing. There was a lot of moments where I geeked out over the serviceware because as those meals often go, there's a lot of garridons or the carts that they push around and do a lot of tableside service, which I think is amazing. And um, just, you know, you get you get a uh, I've only had the pleasure of eating at uh, Pierre Gagnier in Paris, but it's that very, it it reminds me of that experience where the server comes by and, you know, you get three or four dishes set out in front of you and some of them are getting sauced and then some of them are getting uh, foam spewed over them. And one plate has like the dry ice smoke coming out of it. It's, 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 it's theatrics, it's dinner theatrics. And I think it's amazing to showcase that. Um, because I shoot the This Place Called episodes, I think that it's uh, funny for me to experience some of that stuff and, you know, see it from someone else's perspective, and then also see it take off in the way that it gets taken off. There's this great dish of uh, a quenelle spoon. That's a oblong ladle, and that's how they use to scoop the sorbet. It's not a very long video either. Yeah, less than three minutes long. And if you like to geek out about the you know, tableside service and servers dressed in three-piece suits. I think it's definitely a really cool video for those of you that like to geek out about dining out. <laughs> also, in the comment section of the the YouTube video is also a lot of really funny comments about uh, just servers in in general. And also, the very stereotypical person who says, you know, you're going to spend $5,000 and get a mint leaf and walk out hungry... It's definitely a trend I see with these higher-end fine dining meals, which, you know, it is what it is. No stress on that. Moving on, I want to talk about this article that I saw in The Washingtonian, and the title of it is Inside the Pampered and Personalized World of DC's VIP Diners. And the subtext of that is The Big Restaurant Lie, Everyone is Treated the Same. And I don't think anybody this this surprises any of us industry people, especially those of you that do work at places that get either celebrity clientele or, you know, heads of state or you work in a place where, you know, lots of people are coming through that do have to get treated differently because they come with an entourage or they have a crowd of people that are waiting outside. And I think the, the it says, quote, this, the, for everyone else, the rule is that you can't be seated until your entire party arrives. But what happens when the Nationals big shot calls and asks for a table of for three at 7.30 p.m.? And then it talks about things like corner booths that are set aside for specific people and back rooms where, uh, you know, you can get shown to the back room and have a dinner uh, with these certain people, but you aren't always, you know— um, in the limelight where people are coming and asking for photos or or taking cell phone videos of you eating your food and then posting it on Twitter. Uh, There's also these things that they talked about, which is like a rock star table, which is because Bono ate there and sat at that table. It's now called the rock star table. And just this different culture, uh, going back to, you know, what Magnus was talking about with who, like, cooking for certain people. I think that's a very, very interesting point of, you know, who are you cooking for? Who is your ideal clientele? And if you're going to attract that type of person, how do you go about coping with the different needs that those clients uh, bring to the table? Uh, One of the quotes that I thought was funny from the article, which is, quote, a maitre d' always has a table in his back pocket. You know, when you say like, oh, we're sold out, we're at capacity, we can't unfortunately seat you in your party, sir or madam, then, you know, X, Y, Z person walks in, there's always a magical table that manages to, to come to the forefront. I think that's a very interesting point and something that is necessary at some of these places when, you know oh, I just flew in from L.A., I'm coming back to D.C., I need to entertain a client, or, oh, well, so-and-so place wasn't able to seat us, and we want to bring Pharrell to your to your restaurant. Do you have a table for us? You want to be able to have enough chips in your corner to be able to say, yes, we can accommodate that. And I think that that is, you know, to, to people that aren't restaurant industry like us folks, it's news to get this type of information and it's interesting to read about, but if you know if that's your livelihood, I think it's important to, to keep that as super top of mind. Uh, one thing I would be interested to hear about in the comments, or if you folks want to tweet at me what happens at your restaurant, they talk about the hierarchy of how they um, rank people, which is kind of weird to say, but there are different tiers of VIPs, right? And some of you might have experienced this yourself. You might have your own language. Uh, one of the restaurants, go uh, the tiers are PPX, which is Person Particular ment Extraordinary there's TTA, which is Try to Accommodate. That's the acronym for that. And then MA, which is Must Accommodate. So if you often have, you know, your POS system or your reservation platform that you use, and then it, next to certain people, they will get, you know, uh, John Smith hyphen TTA. So Try to Accommodate John Smith, which means, you know, there's some sort of VIP, some sort of regular, they've provided the restaurant some sort of value in the past. And you want to make sure that if they have specific uh, requests that you as it says, try to accommodate. Uh, some. It talks about how some restaurants use the word soigner or super soigne, or PG's. I've certainly heard that before, is preferred guests. That's what PG's stands for. Um, but yeah, it, it also covers a couple of really interesting points that I thought were interesting, like uh, getting political with politicians. So one of the chefs uh, has a point when he talks about, well, you know, Uh, I I noticed because uh, this restaurant was in D.C. Well, you're currently cracking down pretty hard on on immigrants. And just so you know, a lot of the staff in my restaurant are immigrants and I would appreciate X, Y, Z and they voice their political opinions. And then the article talks about Well, that guest didn't end up coming back to this restaurant because you decided to get political with your guests. Uh, but then, at the same time, if you have an opinion or you have something that you want to take a stand on as a business owner, should you not voice that opinion because it disagrees with the views of your clientele? I think that 's a very interesting, possibly rhetorical question. You folks can sign off in the comments if you want um. It also talks about if it is a politician or someone who does have a very public facing persona, they will often like to seat them away from the windows because often, you know, people will walk by certain restaurants that are high profile. And if, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're Kellyanne Conway and you're seated, seating, uh, seated right next to the window that can make for an often uncomfortable experience because what you can offer as a restaurant is to seclude them away from the public in, you know, kind of that back room or that corner booth. Kind of thing, and then there was a great quote that the article mentioned about free advertising, and it says, "quote Everywhere else, it seems the Obamas are still Washington's ultimate VIPs. Ask just about anyone who's anyone in the dining scene which big shot they'd most want in their establishments, and Michelle Obama's name comes up almost every time. She's known for being gracious and easygoing, and seems to know a thing or two about wine. Oh yeah, and the buzz." And it talks about uh, how you know you will. Did, is this what that? Uh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it says every guest gets wand wanded, so that's huge because everyone uh, wants to know who's here. Uh, and that's talking about you know security at the door we don't say at first but it finally all gets out so all those people are going to say i was at joe's when michelle was there it's such great word of mouth advertising and i'm sure some of you have also experienced that uh yourself and it doesn't even just extend to fine dining places or steakhouses you've probably seen it in you know like dumpling shops if a celebrity comes they take a photo with the owner and they put that photo on the wall right next to the entrance when you walk in and that person signs the photo and that's kind of like an endorsement from you know Jerry Seinfeld came to eat here, and I think that that's uh, very interesting that that becomes kind of something that you put out as display as as advertising for your place uh, that you don't often think of when you're opening a restaurant. But then when it happens to you, you look at it as a plus. Um, I don't know. It, it would be interesting to see if that could get implemented as kind of a initial opening strategy for a restaurant where you invite, you know, in the same way that influencer marketing is becoming this thing that people are thinking about being top of mind, I think to have, you know, inviting celebrities for your open and then having them take photos with the owner and then putting those photos right towards the front of the restaurant as part of your strategy, as opposed to this surprise thing that happens. I can see that totally happening. Does anybody know um, any, any restaurant that has done that in the past where like that's part of your opening strategy, not just something that magically happens? happens during the process Uh, the article also talks about data tracking and how that comes in handy it says quote allergies and aversions favorite tables servers or wines names of spouses and kids minutiae such as don't ever put a straw in their drink it's all there, and I think that as platforms like Talk or Resi give you the ability to create guest profiles, I think even Squarespace allows you with your customers to create accounts for them and write notes about uh, different people. I think that becomes increasingly more and more important Um especially when staff turnover can often be high. You know, if if XYZ person comes every four to eight months, I think the staff can definitely be different at that time. And so if you have uh, uh, Jennifer serving one person one time, and then it's George the next time, and that person's new to be able to keep track of the notes of even these, like, like, you know, those high-end clientele don't ever put a straw in their drink because they happen to be the person that's pushing the environmental policy to cut straws out of... All cafes around the globe that can definitely make or break an experience. Uh, so yeah, definitely top of mind with all of that. I thought it was just a, an interesting thing to dive deep into, especially those of you that are on the service end of things. Uh, not much to share else there. All right, let's talk about Hudson Yards. Let's let's transition a little bit because this is this caused a lot of buzz over the kind of month that I was um, away. And I think that I was reading all the articles and I knew that I had this trip to New York coming up. And so I definitely planned a trip to Hudson Yards, one, to just check out the overall experience. I asked a few locals, like I was staying with a a friend in Brooklyn and I asked him about, you know, how is Hudson Yards? What do people think of it? How do people spend time there? What's the clientele like? And he basically shared with me that, you know, it's this very... Uh, high-end, it's almost like a a Singaporean mall where, you know, everything's a little bit too perfect. It's a lot of retail, a lot of um, opulence that isn't necessarily needed. It's not, like, it could be anywhere. Like, you could put yourself in Hudson Yards, and it doesn't feel like you're in New York per se. I had a meal at Kawi, which is David Chang's place, and I almost think that I would have wanted to eat at Tack Room, and we're going to get into Tack Room in a little bit. But I think for the most part, um, I wanted to eat at Kawi because of the coverage that Eater did of um, the, uh, of Hudson Yards. Kawi was the one that got the most praise. There's a piece that they put out, Eater put out about um, the restaurants there by the numbers. It says four of eight full-service restaurants served over Soul, a hallmark of fine dining food. Every single fourth-floor restaurant serves burgers. I think that's interesting. Seven of the eight full service restaurants full steak uh, serve steak. Literally half of the full service restaurants would qualify as chop houses or steak houses. Ca- talking about Queens Yard, Tack Room, Belcampo, Hudson Yards Grill. Three of those steak places are on the fourth floor. That's not an interesting number. Four of the eight restaurants serve similar starters. Don't think that's all that interesting either. And again. That's from our, our, my boy, my, my, my favorite guy to talk about is, uh, Ryan Sutton. And I think that he, his piece was one of the most interesting, uh, that I, that I cover on here. It's linked up in the show notes. I want to see if I can pull up the article itself because man, it was such a cliche thing, uh, to see this, this guy rip apart, uh, certain things about, uh, was it this one? No, Pete Wells didn't have a lot of great things to say about Hudson Yards either. Uh, Who actually eats at Hudson Yards? um, Gender discrimination at Mercado Little Spain. Numerical look at how diverse Hudson Yards is. Where in the world was that uh, Hudson Yards piece? You know where it was? It was right here, and I'm going to pull it up right here. Boom. Boom. All right, so the restaurant that I want to talk about here is Esta Estiatorio Milos. Is and the headline is Esta Estiatorio Milos is one of the last big restaurant scams in New York. So definitely not starting off on a good note. It shows right at the top of the article zero stars out of four, and it. Definitely, he definitely gets into it. So, let's react to some quotes because I think that it's important if I'm going to rip someone apart to give them, like, to give you the full context of the quote before I just kind of go off on it. So, quote. One of the holy grails of modern fine dining has been finding ways to deemphasize the transactional experience of a meal. The culinary arts have always been uniquely handicapped in this sense. Opera would have a different feel if a soprano kicked off the evening by telling its spectators, quote, this aria is going to cost you a ton, end quote, and then send out a check to everyone at the end of the night, end quote. And it sucks because he goes into talking about, well, a lot of places have been able to uh, find ways around this with uh, doing ticketing, which has been great. If he says, quote, some of America's most expensive restaurants have solved this problem via a ticketing system, having guests pay for meals in advance. And I'm going to get into it because I understand where he's coming from. I think this is one of the unique cases where Ryan Sutton talking about price with this restaurant actually makes sense. Because he talks about, well, you know, uh, let, me, let me continue with some of these quotes because you're going to get a, a larger picture. He says, quote, by the pound, prices are posted above most fish. That price, though, means you're either looking at not the actual cost, but the raw data for an incomplete math equation. Either way, you're paying more attention to the waiter's musings on the Milos yacht, which you can apparently rent in the Aegean Sea, or how a two and a half pound lobster would make a nice Meal for a solo diner. The lobsters bear no price tags, which is dangerous for a main that costs more than round trip airfare to Chicago. End quote. So, to give you a little bit more information about this restaurant experience, right? It's a Greek uh, style restaurant. It almost reminds me of like the seafood version of Salt Bay, if that makes sense. Where you know, basically, there's you know, big ice vats with fish resting on the top of it, and. Each fish has kind of like a tag over the top of it. And it says, you know, langoustines for $119 a pound or Dover sole for $65 a pound. And then you can go and pick that fish. They will cook it for you and then serve it to you uh, based on the weight that you um, choose. And I think that's not all that different from you know like I the first this place called episode where I talked about this place called Bateau which is here in Seattle and they do something similar with steak where they have all the cuts available you can choose which steak steak cut you want and then they give you the price per pound you order how much how many pounds you'd like uh, it might be some of the cuts might also be in grams and then they charge you based on what you uh, ordered and I think that um, what is interesting about this restaurant and the way that they structured the service and again, coming back to this, who is this restaurant for? I think it's more talking about the experience of being able to sit there and point to a fish and saying, I want that one, regardless of cost, and that's what you're going to eat tonight, rather than, um, and and the experience of having the server tell you about this fish, rather than exactly, well, I'm going to come in and I'm going to order the Chilean sea bass for $38, and that's going to be my dinner tonight. So, The reason that I do support this horrible review in any capacity is... Kind of reminiscent of this quote, and it says, "Quote: The server says the whole fish is three pounds. You know the price is fifty-six dollars per pound. You were smart enough to take notes, so you figure out your meal will be one hundred and sixty dollars. And yet, when the bill comes, the price is one hundred and ninety-seven dollars. That can't be right," you declare. Not for this strikingly bland product, heavily under salted with just a few paltry capers and no olive oil. Then you take a closer look at the check and notice the fish is a half a pound heavier than the waiter told you it would be. Whoops. End quote. And that's where I understand it, because that's just poor communication, right? That's not necessarily the restaurant trying to out you or trying to, you know, give you something like upcharge you unnecessarily. I think it's just, you know, they they will they they don't want to tell you, well, sir, the price for this Dover, uh, the weight on this Dover sole was three point three pounds. They will probably say, they'll put it on the scale, they'll say, oh, 3.3 pounds, they'll come back to you and they'll say, well, this fish, sir, is is a three-pound fish. And so if that's on them for not being able to communicate effectively of, you know, we want to talk about fractions of pounds, maybe it's just understood that most people don't really care if it's $160 versus $197 because that's a marginal percentage increase in the cost. I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think that this is a, this is not like his other restaurant reviews because this is just clear not being transparent with prices as opposed to him just ranting and raving about things being too expensive. But more on that in a little bit. He says, quote, this isn't exactly Danny Meyer generosity or ambiance either. Hosts don't say goodbye. The guy who pours you a drink won't transfer your tab, and the ambiance evokes a cheap cruise with obstructed views. The lighting is so poor, and the panoramic windows do a better job at reflecting back at the dining room than providing a view of the Hudson. So he's clearly not happy with his experience, right? It's zero out of four stars, and I understand it. If you go and you think the food is bad and you got overcharged for it— I don't think that results in an overall good impression of a space, especially if you also think that the service was bad. But I think that, you know, he is going to be critical of this kind of stuff because it's right up his alley of being in New York, being for the ultra wealthy and, you know, not being transparent about price. So it's no surprise to me that he ripped it apart in the way that he did. But I think what we should talk about a little bit while we're on the topic of Ryan Sutton is this literally just came out a few hours ago, and that's the, the joy of me being able to do these off the cuff a little bit, is he wrote this article about, per se, he wrote about his experience uh, 10.40 a.m. Eastern Time today, and the article is, is per se good again? Thomas Keller's Columbus Circle Tasting Menu under Chef Corey Chow has far more wins than in the past. And it talks about the annual revenue of Per Se. It talks about Corey Chow be- taking the helm as chef de cuisine. It talks about uh, tack room and how his, it's a, quote, Keller's extravagantly expensive Hudson Yard spot, end quote. Uh, I decided, he says, I decided it was worth swinging by for another meal. Quote, my chief takeaway is that Per Se appears to have straightened the ship, sort of, end quote is interesting to hear uh it talks about the good a couple of uh dishes of peas and carrots uh marmalade of spaghetti squash with xo sauce uh pastry chef anna bowls's work which she's been doing amazing amazing stuff with um um, um, what else does it talk about here The, the the clunkers it talks about the dishes that didn't go so well he says um Quote, the shortfalls weren't so much the type of calculated let's-see-if-this-works experiments one expects in a long-tasting. Instead, they were tired examples of classical cooking. Pan-roasted monkfish with bacon tasted like virtually any other version of this dish at an everyday brasserie. Same goes for a ho-hum grilled quail breast. Ocetra caviar, a $60 supplement, was a, simply, a simple study in aggressive, palate-destroying salinity thanks to a pairing with smoked trout riets Then it goes back into the good. And then, of course, in typical Ryan Sutton fashion, it talks about the price. And I thought this was an interesting point because he attempts to do some math here on the supplements that Per Se does. So for everybody that isn't aware, the base price for Per Se's tasting menu is $355. That is service included. That includes the nine-course chef's tasting. It also includes the desserts there as well. And it's interesting that he talks about it in that way because he says it is one of the country's few restaurants where dinner can hit a whole grand before wine, which I don't really understand, right? Because if you do the math on the tasting menu, which is $355, and then all the supplements, which goes $30, $60, $125, and then $100— The total of that comes to $670. So I don't understand where he's getting meal. If you get all the supplements, it can be $1,000 before you get wine. I mean, because even if you add tax to $670, it's not quite getting even close to $900. Um, But then, you know, he talks about how, you know, some of the other, some of these supplements at other tasting menu restaurants are included right? And that's going back to that Joshua Skeen's uh, podcast episode. He talks about, well, you know, the reason the menu at Saison is so expensive is because we have caviar included. We have, you know, crab included. We have foie gras included on the menu, and we don't charge a supplement for it. That's why our base price is close to $500 when everybody else is down at 300 and then they supplement it onto your, to your cost. Uh, he says, quote, and since folks, this is from Ryan Sutton. He says, quote, and since folks often like to claim that the best dining is on par price-wise with the best theater, considering the following, if both patrons at a table for two order all of Per Se's more expensive winter supplements, they'd rack up a $1,600 bill, enough for a blowout meal at Le Bernardin, a good electric scooter, and a pair of tickets to see Hamilton. And I hate, I really, really dislike this. Well, you could get this dinner, or you could get this, this, and this, and a meal at McDonald's. I don't. I really, really don't like that. That's like saying, you know, well, you could get an iPhone or you could get a OnePlus 7 with, you know, XYZ camera and a lens and a blah, blah, blah. It's just, it's not productive conversation because you're not comparing apples to apples. And that's something that I really enjoyed that That. Uh, Josh Skeens does in this interview is he says, You're not comparing apples to apples, but let's, when we do compare apples to apples, then it's a completely different conversation. And I think that that's uh, important to talk about when we're talking about him discussing uh, math at at, at, Per se. So I am happy to see that he is back on their good, like Per se is back on his good side, especially when he does have this platform that, you know, puts out the information that it does. Um, I really, really have a different perspective now that I literally ate at Per Se last week. I Maybe I should just share that here. So I was at Columbus Circle. I really wanted to go have a cocktail at Aviary before I was going to eat uh, at La Den, which I did shoot at this place called Episode About. Aviary didn't have any space. And so effectively, I decided that, well, you know, I'm in Columbus Circle. I might as well go see what's happening at Per Se. Uh, it was the same night as their special legacy dinner. So for those of you that don't know, they, one of the core values at the Thomas Keller restaurant group is legacy. And so one of the things that they wanted to do was bring chefs that have worked at Per Se in the past, have their own projects going on now, bring them back to Per Se and do a dinner out of the private dining room. So one of these dinners was that night, and I had no intention of going and eating at that dinner because it was 500 dollars a person, and I would have been eating by myself, which would have been very awkward in a private dining room with people that I have never met before. And so I thought, you know, I could just go and sit at the salon. I could just go sit at the bar and, you know, order a drink, order oysters and pearls just for nostalgia's sake, and then go to dinner at La Den. Uh... Come to find out that my old roommate, uh, Daniel, is maitre d' there now, and before I know it, Cory Chow's hand is on my shoulder, and we're catching up a little bit because he came to Norway with his family on a cruise, and I had the pleasure of cooking for Cory Chow uh, in Norway, at least for So before I know it, I'm like six courses deep and I have all the desserts on my table and there's a thing on my clipboard right now that says on my pegboard that says your meal has been complimentary by Chef Corey Chow. I'm trying to make sure my eyes can read that. And yeah, so I got a free meal at Per Se, which was amazing. So shout out to everybody and their hospitality there. It was really, really incredible to experience. I can definitely attest to the fact that Corey is killing it. And he's doing a lot of really inspired riffs on the classics at Per Se. Like I had a, a, instead of the salmon in the cornet, I had kampachi. Um, instead of the Gougere, I had a cheese it with pimento cheese on the inside. So it's like two, um, Pat brisé kind of crackers. And then inside is a spicy pimento cheese. And that's the kind of cheese bite instead of the classic Gougere. Um, the foie course was amazing. Oysters and Pearls has a different caviar than when I worked there. There's just a lot of really incredible um, kind of alterations that he's made to kind of re-inspire and put his own signature on that chef de cuisine role because, you know, they're big shoes to fill and they're also clientele, like we're talking about, that come to per se year after year after year and they expect the same thing and to kind of... Stick to the guns while still re-inspiring it is not an easy task, and I know that he's just, he's killing it. So, Hubert's gonna eat there tonight, I'm pretty sure. My friend Hubert is in New York tonight, he's eating at Per Se. He's gonna do the full menu, which I didn't experience, I kinda had an abbreviated uh, menu, so I had... Most of the dishes that I wanted to eat, along with a couple extras, courtesy of the team there, which is great. Um, but yeah, I can just, I I can attest to the fact that Corey Chow has breathed new life into Per Se, and I'm happy to see that it's being recognized in this way. I just wish that, I just keep going back to this, right? Like, it doesn't have to be about the price, man. And so the last kind of note that I have in this um you know, kind of note that I have about Ryan Sutton is that I want to interview Ryan Sutton. I want to sit down with him. I want to have a one-on-one conversation. I want to ask him these questions about why do you think that prices are the way that they are in these restaurants? Do you think that they're trying to rip you off? Do you think that they're getting rich off this stuff? Do you think that they're, um, you know, driving Lamborghinis around in Dubai when you're sitting in their dining rooms and paying $160 for a tasting menu. Because it's often not the case. And I just want to kind of get a sense of where his mindset is at and why he is the way that he is in his writing and why his point of view is the way that it is. Because I don't think it's fair that I sit here on my podcast and talk shit about the way that he writes about food if I'm not gonna also extend that invitation to him and say, you know, listen, man, I want to have a conversation to see where you're coming from. And if we disagree, we disagree. But I don't like when you're putting people down for all these wrong reasons. You know what I mean? And the point that I want to lead into with that, which comes from another woman who also has very similar experience to me, uh, put out a piece on Medium, and it's called Tack Room, Behind the Price Tag. And the author's name is Melissa Caputo. She is a employee for thomas keller at per se and um you know she's an author who's on my side with her hatred of ryan sutton she says quote ryan sutton's recent review of the tack room made me more infuriated than i have been in my entire 31 year lifespan i wasn't angry because i had just dined at the tack room two weeks ago i truly thought it was delicious and a great addition not only to hudson yards but to the new york dining scene in general I wasn't angry because I know many of the extremely talented members of the Tack Room team who have been working extremely demanding schedules for the past five months. I wasn't angry because I work for Thomas Keller and felt offended by Sutton's continued distaste for all operations run by Chef Keller. I was infuriated because Ryan Sutton cries about the price of almost every item on the menu and does not realize what's going into those numbers. End quote, which is an extremely better articulated way uh, to put it, rather than how I've been, you know, spewing my thoughts. But you know, she's been cooking in New York City for eleven years. Um, her experience working at Per Se uh, is has been amazing from her perspective, and she talks about how all the benefits that go along with paying your staff fair. She says, quote. A very fairly hourly rate, my beyond average health insurance options, which included my dental and vision packages, my new 401k, which could be matched by 3% by the company, as well as my paid vacation days. I could even opt in for pet insurance, end quote. And so basically what she's saying from that perspective is, you know, yes, you're paying a lot for a $355 tasting menu, but every single staff member, for the most part, gets paid a fair wage. And it's not a restaurant that's being run by 40 stagiaires. Yes, there might be some externs that are working for free or for less than, you know, normal pay, but that's part of their education, right? And I have another video that uh, Joe and I shot that's all about, you know, kind of my experience with my externship and the goals that I had and what um, I took out of that experience. So she also talks about sourcing the product, which also goes into the cost. She says, quote, Chef Keller is known for building relationships with farms that create an incredible product, and these farmers are able to do so because of how they treat the animals. This has been a consideration when analyzing the cost of the dish. Furthermore, the Grill, perhaps the most comparable restaurant to Tack Room, has price points that are near identical to Chef Keller's, yet their menus give very little indication as to where their products are coming from, other than quote-unquote American. So the the biggest point that I want to that I want to take from this is, you know, Ryan Sutton has his opinion. And then the people who are actually working in these restaurants and have experience in writing menus and costing things have very different opinions on this stuff. And I just think that, you know, I've said it before on the show that it's the easiest criticism to have is, well, it should be cheaper. You could say that literally about anything you know point to the the rent on my apartment it should be cheaper the camera i'm shooting this on it should be cheaper this apple laptop it should be cheaper the coffee you got this morning it could be cheaper and it's true it could be cheaper but then to quote thanos here at what cost is it thanos who says that it's gamora who says that baby gamora says that anyways um i just think the 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 disclaimer That I have to say at the end of this whole thing and the mic drop at the end of this entire uh, conversation that she has is... Quote, I am not speaking on behalf of the restaurant group at all, and with that said, I would like to add that I think Ryan Sutton's reviews feel more like a bargain price comparison tool, such as Expedia or Kayak, rather than a decent piece of writing about the food and the restaurants. I would be very surprised if any guest going to the tack room is going because they hope for a great cheap steak, the best deal in the city, but it seems like the price tag is still all Sutton can focus on for his reviews of Thomas Keller's restaurants. I thought I could offer some insight for his next Expedia-style price comparison end So that's still the kind of like the end of my, um, you know, thoughts on this is that I I, I will continue to cover Ryan Sutton's writing because I think it's important that if you're the first person, uh, if you're new to the show and you haven't seen my stuff before, I think it's important to voice my continued criticism of his criticisms. But I I wouldn't like for this to be a one-sided kind of conversation. I would love to sit down with Ryan. I would love to interview him and get kind of more of his thoughts because I, I, I don't think what he's doing for the industry is productive. I don't think what he's doing is respectful. I don't think what he's doing uh, accomplishes what he hopes to accomplish. I think that if anything, he is dissing, he's not encouraging people to become patrons of these restaurants, which then causes them to be more strapped for cash, which then causes them to do things that are not economically viable for sustainable business. And because of that, it's causing harm to the industry as a whole. And that's why I feel like I want to use this platform to kind of speak about these things. Because if we want our chefs to get paid more, if we want our staff to be happier and live more sustainably in their work, I think that we have, like, finances have to come into play. And if you're going to constantly complain that things should be cheaper, it doesn't accomplish that. And so, um, yeah, I think that if we're going to... talk about places ripping you off, then you should absolutely voice your concern because they told you it was going to be $168 and it comes to your table at 197 That's not okay. But if you're going to talk about, well, you know, I think that this... Uh you could go eat at per se, or you can buy an electric scooter. It's not a really good argument. And so I rest my case on that. I think, um, yeah, we will move on from that. I think the next uh, piece that I want to talk about is a piece from Eater that uh, cataloged the kind of change and paradigm shift that we're having right now in, in service and manners and how people get addressed at the tables. And this will... Uh, I have a video coming out that's already shot. It just needs to be edited about why I explain, uh, I explain why I say what's up, folks, instead of what's up, guys. Uh, And I will just, I'll leave it at that, uh, but I want to talk about this article. So it's called The End of Ladies' First Restaurant Service. And so it talks a lot about um, service norms uh, and how, you know, sometimes the Court of Master Psalms talks about giving the person who ordered the wine the first taste of the wine, and that's a service norm. Uh, Saying the words ladies and gentlemen at a table is a service norm. And again, this last one, serving ladies first when you're presenting a dish, is a service norm. So it talks about how certain restaurants are eliminating this quote-unquote ladies and gentlemen from their vocabulary, and they're not serving ladies first. It does... Bring up an interesting factoid that I didn't really know about, that there used to be this thing called a ladies' menu, which was apparently identical to the men's menu, but the prices weren't included, which I think is very, very interesting, where, you know, you would uh, be able to order a la carte, but you would say, I want to order the mussels and the foie gras and the steak, and you would tell the man that, if you were, you know, in that kind of a a dining, if it was a two-top with a man and a woman, the woman would get the ladies' menu, Tell either tell the server what she would like to order, or she would tell the man what he what she would like to order, and then the man would communicate that to the server. Which is very anti, it seems very antiquated, uh, but again, this is not all that uh, recent that this uh, whole thing has happened. So, uh, it also talks about this dilemma that certain people are dealing with when it's one like I, in that same case study when it's one man and one woman at a table. Who do you serve first? An example from the article quoting someone saying, "I think do they think." I don't know what I'm doing or that I'm being rude or not paying attention, end quote. And I think that that's a very interesting point when, you know, you don't want to have this stereotypical serving the ladies first, but if you walk up to a table and you have two plates in your hand, if you serve the man first, is it seen as bad service or is it seen as being a little bit more progressive and a little bit more, you know, all-inclusive? I think that's a a very interesting uh, point here. Hubert? I know you're just joined on the live stream here, but we talked about you going to per se tonight. So you'll have to fill everybody in on what your uh, what your experience is. Hubert's on the live stream before we're, we're dead here on my phone. Um, so let's see. It also says, quote, and for transgender and non-binary patrons, the stakes are higher. Manners can often become an issue of recognizing a person's humanity when pouring a person When pouring a person a server perceives as female first may seem like a polite, safe choice, innocuous at worst, misgendering is a very real occurrence for many trans people, and can happen in far more ways than addressing a person using incorrect pronouns. Simply being served second or having a door opened can constitute as passive misgendering, a surefire way to ruin someone's day, and for the restaurant to potentially lose a customer. From a strictly service perspective, relying on perceived gender performances offers front of house staff more opportunities for social faux pas, end quote. So it's basically talking, you know, in other words, because you don't know, having these service steps that, you know, to you seem hospitable can often get misconstrued as you're misgendering someone. And that can cause a lot of hurt, especially for someone who has just, you know, started using different pronouns, or you know, has gone through you know their own changes themselves. So the article talks about respect, which I think that is the ultimate word, right? And I I think that the key here is to not like none of this comes from a malicious place. I don't think from any of us. Uh, I think that for the most part, everybody is pretty open minded and 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 is trying to adapt with these new changes and different societal and, and cultural. Um, norms that we are now adopting as normal I don't I, I i can't think of a restaurant in my time that i've been eating where anna has gotten a ladies menu right so things change and and we're all just kind of learning as we go i think that a solution that i might be able to offer though is just to communicate more right I, th- I think that c- communication from both sides can be key i think that uh, Alex Myslish and I talked about this in our podcast interview where I think the worst thing you can do in a restaurant is is assume, right? And I think from both from both sides oftentimes people assume. And I think that um as long as no one's hurting anyone, I don't think that there's going to be any issues but, you know, I'm just one guy. I have my intentions and other people have different intentions. So I think the thing that I want to do on this story specifically is to pass the question on to you folks. If you are someone who has experienced this kind of discrimination based on service norms, Or if you have a solution that you can offer to us as restaurant industry and and, and service people who are interacting with guests in these environments, we're like, well, you know what? My restaurant actually implemented this policy and it's been working great for us. I think if you were were to share that with us, either you know, I'm happy to blast it on Twitter or put it out on Instagram, or if you comment on it, I think a lot of people will really enjoy being able to see it. Um, But yeah, I would really enjoy having... That dialogue with you folks to make sure that we are being more inclusive, not just on the gender side, but right on on, on the race side, on the sexual orientation side, Uh, because I don't think any of our goals is to make people feel uncomfortable, right? We want we enjoy making people feel comfortable and welcome and exuding hospitality. But how we do that in a way when we don't have all the information, at least at the start of the interaction, can often become difficult. So, yeah, just want to know your folks' thoughts on that. If you have things to share, um, please leave them where I can blast them out. The BBC, the BBC, doesn't anybody call it the BBC? BBC put out a piece with Massimo Bottura, and it caught my attention because it is called The Future of Food According to Massimo Bottura. And I... I got more information from it than I thought I would, especially when it started, because I started to realize that oh, this is just a mini Chef's Table episode on Massimo Bottura. Uh, it does show us inside of that bed and breakfast that we covered on the show a few weeks ago, uh, the twelve room little bed and breakfast in Emilia Romagna that the him and his wife started, where you know there's Gucci wallpaper on the walls and eclectic art and custom tile in each room to kind of give that you know that vibe that's very modern and chic and contemporary. Um, so that was cool to see. They definitely cover that. So for anybody who's been curious about what does it look like inside of Massimo Butura's, uh, B&B, you can see that now. Um, a couple quotes that I took away, ethics before aesthetics, which I thought was interesting coming from him, especially because I just wish he would be a little more transparent on some of the nuances of it, right? He talks about, you know, um we don't waste anything at Osteria Francescana even though you know we take the be- we uh do take raw product and distill it down to the heart of it you know where we're kind of only using uh the core of a lettuce or we're only using uh the the loin fillet from a fish and it all gets used in some way shape or form I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. Maybe it does get used for staff meal or they incorporate the 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 vegetable trim and the bones from the fish in certain stocks that then get used for sauces. But I just know that on the high end level of cuisine, certain things get wasted. And I just wish that if that was the case, he would swip, swap the hats and be like, you know, we have these community kitchens that are incredibly good at using product that would normally be wasted and we serve it to hundreds of people a day but then at Austria Francescana it's about using things in their prime state and we want to serve you a multitude of different things so I can't serve you a whole head of lettuce I have to serve you a smaller piece of that lettuce because I want to serve you 30 different courses and so unfortunately Osteria Francescana wastes a little bit more than I'm comfortable with, but because of the level of cuisine that it executes at, it gives me the fame to then open up community kitchens. So I see it as a net positive result. Does that make sense rather than saying, well, yes, Osteria Francescana is amazing at not wasting things. If any of you folks work there or, you know, have thoughts on this, I would like, if you have the behind-the-scenes of the Wizard of Oz curtain, I would love to know that, y- yeah, dude, it's actually true. austria Franciscana doesn't waste all that much. But from my experience working at these restaurants, there is a lot of waste, and that's just is the way that it is. But, like I said, because he's creating this platform to do good, it's net positive. But I guess that's... Um, my thoughts there. Um, he does talk about this other quote where he says, quote, there's no difference between taking 550 liters of milk and making it into cheese and a cook who feeds the most vulnerable people. It's the same kind of art. End quote. I don't necessarily know if that's true. Maybe from his perspective, it is because these community kitchens that he's starting are such a priority for him. Um, it does give a great tour through the menu. What else do I say here? The line about not wasting Austri- anything at Austria Franciscana, I don't really buy it. If anybody has thoughts on that, I would love to hear your opinion or your facts. Um, Overall, I think the video is, I think it's 12 minutes long, but it's a really fun doc, like mini documentary about his food if you've never seen his stuff before, or if you kind of want a supplemental piece of content if you really enjoyed his Chef's Table episode. Uh, But overall, I I think if you've been following Massimo for a little while, it's not something that you are really going to watch and then be like, whoa, that was amazing. I don't think it's going to teach you anything you didn't already know. Um, I watched it for you and I'm distilling all the knowledge here. But um, yeah, one thing I realized about working as a chef, you become numb to waste. I think that's uh, an interesting point. That's from uh, Rahan.Jarvis on Instagram. But yeah, that's something I wanted to share, something for you to watch next. It's linked up in the show notes. Uh, Let's see. There's a great piece that Philip DeFranco and his new company, Rogue Rocket, put out all about uh, gastro-diplomacy. And I thought that was a very interesting piece because um, Philip DeFranco inspired this show uh, in a major way. I think that he, um, just the way that he talks about news and the way that he talks about headlines have been very, very inspirational to me. And the way that he runs down the news and shares his opinion, in addition to all the facts, has kind of been great for me to see and get inspired through. So to see him launch his own media company was great. And to also see him wanting to cover things about food has also been great. So for those of you that don't know, there is two terms that are covered in this piece of content, gastro diplomacy and culinary diplomacy, which are two different things. So gastro diplomacy is trying to influence foreign publics, which we're we going to talk about in a second. And culinary diplomacy is interacting with other foreign governments. So to give a little bit more uh, insight into that. So Culinary uh, diplomacy, the example that they give is this thing that happened uh, in 19— let's see what the the date is, if it's going to be easy for me to pull up here—1939. So it was uh, FDR had a summit with um, the king and queen of England, came over to the U.S. in in Hyde Park, New York, and they ate hot dogs. And an article, a a piece of media came out at the time that said— Uh, The king loved the hot dogs. And so what they talk about here is food being used to project a narrative to the public. So through things like political state dinners, uh, naming a dish after a politician or incorporating specific cultural nuances into food, when you invite someone to experience that, it can often be perceived as incredible hospitality and then facilitate other moves to get made outside of just the dinner, right? So if you want a certain policy to go through or a trade agreement or uh, certain immigration policies to get passed, if you invite this person for dinner and you're able to kind of woo them with different uh food things i think that that often results it gives some great examples of ways that that has been productive on all sides of different governments um it does talk about how it goes bad apparently when shinzo abe who is uh the politician from japan came to the u.s or no came to the u.s came to hungary anyways they served him his last chocolates in a shoe which for anybody that's familiar with Japanese culture is like the worst thing you can do because no one likes shoes in their houses. Uh, it's it, they give this uh, reference to it's like serving a Jewish person, uh, something in a pig, which would not be uh, all that acceptable. Um, and then it, to tie into the other uh, term that they talk about, which is gastro diplomacy, which for to remind you is trying to influence foreign publics. And that talks about the rise of Thai restaurants here in the US, where the Thai American population is only 300,000 people. But it has because of their uh, gastro diplomacy, they had a massive push to try to get Thai chefs and Thai restaurants big in the U.S. I would just be curious to hear if any of you folks have experiences like that, where, you know, you have someone who has either sponsored a visa for you or encouraged you to open a restaurant to inject your food into a different culture. I just think that's fascinating to see like when Iceland would offer those stopovers in Reykjavik. And that was a massive wave of tourism there because you could essentially do two, two vacations in one. And that was how they increased their tourism. So I'm always interested to see what these big moves Uh, result in I got to talk about the news about Breville acquiring chef steps because that has been you know shaky ground for everyone involved with that and I know a bunch of you are pissed off that they stopped producing content hopefully this will uh, inject some new excitement into them Um, my friend Lorraine broke the news to me and she's been kind of updating me on all these little uh, things she used to run the social media for them um, she sent me this article piece on the fact that there was a massive auction that happened uh, in the, market, the Pike Place Market space where they were getting rid of a bunch of equipment and uh, you know, probably desks and chairs and all that stuff. So the office there is definitely going through a little bit of a makeover. I'm very sad that I couldn't make it to that auction. I was out of town for, where was I? I was somewhere, but I couldn't make it to that auction because I would really love to get my hands on some of their tools that they're working with. But the thing that I really wanted to speak on, and hopefully I get to talk to this guy, uh, Nikki G. Straight Flexin is his uh, handle on Instagram, and he was uh, Nick from Chef Steps. He was one of the hosts. And the photo that he posted on Instagram was very interesting. Uh, It's the door of Chef Steps going into the offices, and it says, Last looks. It was a beautiful ride, and at the end of the day, I wish we would have shared so many of the things we built. I was sad for weeks with what happened, but time to move on. Just remember to respect your team and to do right by them. I hope to find a team that respects the kind of devoted individuals working for them. End quote. And so he got a lot of love. Uh, he's leaving, and I, I, I don't really know the drama behind it. Again, I would love to get him on the podcast to chat through what those last few days at Chef Steps were like because I, based on what I've heard from people that work there— It can be a dramatic organization. So, I mean, I'm just excited to see what happens. Obviously, most of us want more content from ChefSteps and more products because they are so thoughtful about the tech that they put into this space because they're very empathetic. They're chefs that are creating products for the home cook, which I think is different than a product designer making a product for a home cook or a consumer, if that makes sense. So from the press release, it says, quote, the acquisition brings together two companies with an aligned mission to help home cooks achieve perfect results while offering an unparalleled opportunity to invest in further growth, original content and innovation for the benefit of consumers, retailers and the Chef Steps community, end quote. I did actually get an email about this whole acquisition and transition because my jewel account is connected to my email address. I love my jewel, It's my favorite circulator I've ever owned. Um, but, you know, I'd just be curious to see what Chris Young is going to do now that he is, I don't know what his role is going to be in Chef Steps anymore. Grant, obviously, Grant Krilly obviously has his own TV show. And then the other staff, like Riva, who is their photographer, videographer person, I'm curious to see what she's going to be up to as, you know, this transition happens. All right, so that will do it with our industry stories. The non-industry story that I want to talk about today, which is a bit of an update, and some of you have been really great on the platform so far, is I'm back on Pokemon Go. I'm playing Pokemon Go again. I It's on my home screen. I open it up whenever I have a minute, and I choose to do that instead of sc- scroll mindlessly through Instagram. And so if anybody wants to be my friend on Pokemon Go, I actually have a research task right now that is make three new friends. So... I've got my trainer code in the description of this uh, podcast episode, and for everybody watching on YouTube, maybe I will have my QR code there for you to scan if you're interested. Uh, but yeah, for everyone that's still playing Pokemon Go or still wants to, you know, battle—I I don't think we can battle. Can we trade? Anyways, I think we can battle. We can't trade unless we're next to each other. But anyways, uh, because I'm traveling so much, I'm constantly uh, swiping Pokestops and getting gifts, and I'm very, very good at giving gifts back. So if you want to get a gift from me on Pokemon Go, I would love to be your friend. That trainer code is in the description. And for anyone that's, you know... If we do meet up in any sort of city or if I do a meetup, I would love to do like a little Pokemon walk around with a few people uh, if you're interested and do some raid battles together because it's just fun. I just think it's uh If you would have told me when I was 10 years old that I could, you know, have this little device in my hand where I could actually catch digital Pokemon and keep them on this thing that I'm going to constantly carry around with and trade with my friends without a stupid Game Boy cable, I think... Uh, I would call you crazy, and I would be very excited that that was a real thing. But it is a real thing, and I think it's amazing. So, uh, yeah, shout-out to everyone that's still playing Pokemon Go and being a nerd with me. All right, so uh, direct answer. I have two that I've been meaning to answer, and you folks have been so patient with me uh, with this whole thing. So I want to do two on this episode. So the first one comes from at Rohit underscore Chidurala on Instagram. He says, uh, hi Justin, I've recently started following your content and totally love everything you put out. I'm studying in culinary school right now. I need your advice or hopefully a video or a podcast on this question, the importance of common sense in the kitchen and how to improve your common sense and awareness in the kitchen, how to learn the most during your intern period. Thank you for your reply. This is definitely a video that I need to build on. I love the fact that my stagiaire email template and the what do I bring to a stage video did so well. This is kind of the next step in that in that uh training. That I, that I put out there on the internet is the, you know, what is some common sense things to expect on a first stage? What are things, what are good questions to ask, bad questions to ask? Uh, kitchen etiquette I think is also really important. And I think once you get past those initial things, then it becomes kitchen-specific, right? Different uh, establishments have their own different quirks. So I think in that video, I would probably talk about, you know, the basics of when you're walking through a kitchen, to say behind. If you're holding a knife or something hot, let people know that you're walking by with something hot or something sharp, especially if you're not carrying it in a proper way. Um, Things like... You know, if someone shows you a demo of something and you have your cutting board, keep that demo in a container on your cutting board. So when you're 55 cauliflower florets in, you can reference the size of the cauliflower you're prepping towards the demo that they gave you. Because oftentimes, uh, it's like a game of telephone with yourself. You know? You'll know, you do the first five and then you'll have one that's a little bit bigger and then that becomes your normal. And then by the time you get to the end of the project, you look at the one that you, uh, number 100 versus the demo and it's not exactly the same piece of cauliflower. So um, the other piece of advice that I like to give is after you've done like five or 10 of something, go back to the person that gave you the demo and just say, hey, I just want to double check to make sure that this is what we're looking for. And that's really good uh, language to use um to make sure that they know that you're there to support them not just to be a kitchen bitch i guess is the 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 way that i would put it um common sense and awareness i think just understanding what it looks like when people are super head down versus when people are you know kind of a little bit more lax i what i what i don't want is for you to walk into a kitchen that is completely silent, a la, you know, an Alinea or a, you know, higher end quiet kitchen and start to shoot the shit with other people. You know what I mean? Also not thinking that, you know, just because you're there hanging out means that you can converse with people. And, and I, I based just based on your question and you know the way that you seem to present yourself I don't think that that is going to be an issue for you But some people have that problem and some people don't know what the kitchen etiquette is other common sense things Um, it's not out of the ordinary for you to ask a question on what certain things are going for Uh, basically like if you're making a lobster sauce what dishes is this going on? um, because I know for me, having the full picture of the, the dish is, you know, lobster quenelle with salthouse and uh, potato dauphinoise is a little bit more, um, it, it, it gives me more clarity on what I'm prepping for as opposed to, well, we're just making lobster sauce right now. Um, so think about that, ask those questions. The thing that I would really like to do with stages as, is before I would go in, I would try to get a copy of the menu. So I could read through it and see kind of where dishes are and how the kitchen will maybe break down. And if you're just starting, you don't have this insight, but you, uh, you, it will grow and your awareness will grow and common sense will grow for you. What seems like common sense for me might seem like totally advanced topics for you, especially if you're just starting. Um, and then how to learn the most during your intern period. I always like to ask if, especially with coaching people, is there someone in the organization that has taken an interest in mentoring you, or have you seen something that you, per- someone that you particularly latch onto that you want to continue to grow and learn with? And I think that that's very important um, because if you find someone that is willing to answer your sometimes trivial and stupid questions, they can skyrocket your progress because you spend less time wondering and more time. Moving on to the next question and the more questions you can get answered, the more your knowledge base is going to grow and then the more capable you become in the kitchen ultimately. So hopefully that answered your question. It's definitely the next progression in the stagiaire series that I need to produce, Uh, but that definitely gives me at least somewhat of of a framework to work off of. If you have more questions uh, to ask on that, I would definitely love for you to hit me up either in the comments or tweet at me or send me another DM on Instagram because The feedback I get from answering this question will help inform the video. And that's what I love about these kind of like living conversations that we can have with this, with this platform. Derek C. Santiago on Instagram says, Big fan of your work, both the food you cook and the advice you give. Your videos always get me to think of things in a different way that I might have not yet. You talk a lot about the restaurant you worked at in Norway. Maybe I missed this video, but how did I get the job there? He's been trying to get work overseas for a little while, and you always seem to run into the visa-slash-sponsorship problem at every place. I've had multiple places invite me to stage for weeks at a time, but it doesn't seem financially stable for me to do that without at least the possibility of employment. I was wondering if you have any advice. Uh, Appreciate the time and all the content I put out. Thank you so much for the kind words. Happy to answer this for you. Um, It depends on the country, I guess, is the first asterisk that I need to insert into this conversation because... um, So for Norway... Specifically for me, the way that it worked at the time was I would put in a request for how long I wanted my visa to be, and then based on how the government saw my application, they would grant me whatever visa I would, I would get. So my first visa I requested was six months. I ended up getting a year. Uh, contrast that with my roommate John. He requested a year visa, and they only gave him six months. And then I came back when it was time to renew my visa, I requested for a year, and they gave me two years, which was great. So that meant that uh, my education and my work experience and my standing as a quote-unquote citizen in the country were, uh, or a resident, I guess, not a citizen, were in good enough standing where they were like, yeah, this guy can stay. He seems like a, a functioning member of society. So... For Norway specifically that's what I can speak to. I know for the UK and for, you know, other countries it's in France it's it's different. So the best opportunity that I would push you towards is to find a restaurant that is interested in hiring you and is full stop on wanting to sponsor your visa. That's just the cut and dry of it is it's way easier to have a business help sponsor your visa rather than you go and just try to get it on your own. Now, the advice that I have given in the past which tends to work if you're willing to eat dirt for a little while, is to find a organization in the country that you want to live in that's willing to give you a visa because they want to hire you. You know, it might not be your dream job, but then at least you get in the country, and then you can afford to kind of, you know, float your float yourself financially where, you know, you find a pizza shop that's wanting to hire someone and willing to sponsor your visa. They give you income, You can then get an apartment, you then have your visa, and all that stuff is then taken care of, and then you progress to go to the restaurant that you're interested in in working at. Does that make sense? So you get all this initial stuff where you're not scrambling to try to figure out how I'm going to get a visa to stay in the country, and that's less stress on you, that's less stress on the restaurant, because they don't feel so rushed to get your visa pushed out. They're like, oh, well, you already have a visa. And then it's also easier if you say, well, I just like to transfer my employment from the pizza company to relay, you know, if you're working in Copenhagen, that's easier to do rather than saying, well, relay, I really need you to sponsor my visa because I'm trying to land in Copenhagen in two weeks and I need a job. You know what I mean? Um, let's see, what was the other question? Multiple places invite you to stage. It doesn't seem to financially stable to do. Yeah. I, I, w- I would just float that, I, like communicate that and basically say, you know, I want a stage, but I need, I need a potential for work. And, you might just have to eat that. You might just have to work here in the U.S. or wherever you're based out of, or if it's Canada, and just you know, do the savings to be able to float yourself for three months. Um, I I had enough for two months worth of expenses before I moved to Norway, and that was definitely uh much needed when i had to wait to get my income and then you know my initial two months salary got deposited into my roommate's account because they didn't want to pay taxes on it in in some weird way and it wasn't that they didn't want to pay taxes it's just my visa hadn't processed yet so they wanted to pay me but they couldn't technically pay me because i needed a visa to then get my bank account it's a mess um So it's not for everyone. You have to definitely be at a certain stage in your life when you're okay with doing these kinds of things. But yeah, that would be my advice is to find a place that can uh, float you or is willing to sponsor you. The luxury I had was the chef I wanted to work for was didn't want to hire Norwegians. I mean, he wanted to hire Norwegians. It's just he knew that the caliber of chefs coming out of Norway was not the same as chefs coming from the US or France or Amsterdam or Spain. You know what I mean? And so he was willing to do that extra legwork on the back end to get these people visas because he knew that it would result in better staff for his newly opening restaurant. So if you can find someone like that, that's definitely the way to go because those are the people who are going to be open-minded enough to support you in your decision. How do I end these podcasts, huh? What do scripts look like for podcasts when I end? Uh, I think that you should support the show on Patreon. I would like to give a shout out to the people who have supported on Patreon. Um... I normally do that towards the beginning. How in the world did I miss that? Let's see what my notifications say on, who are the awesome folks who are new supporters to my content and get this wonderful shout-out. So I have Cesar Rob- Robert Alfano. Thank you so much for your support. Ryan Mitchell is a new supporter. Igor Estevan is a new supporter. And I think that's it that I've missed. Oh, Zachary Chu, of course. Thank you so much for your support. What else do I have? What else do I have? Have I missed Terrence McDonald? I'm sure I have. Uh, Christopher Vargas and Diogo Pierre Pereira hope I said that name right. I also have an Adam Witt, who I'm pretty sure I said thank you to. And I also have an Anthony Guy and uh, Crystal Macareg so much thanks. So many thanks to be given. Um, If you're interested in supporting the content that I produce, patreon.com is the place to do that. Patreon.com slash Justin Kana. There's more about this in the intro that I'm going to roll in a second. Am I forgetting anything? Forgetting anything? Thanks so much for your patience with this new format. I'm going to get better at it. Um, But until the next show, thank you so much for listening. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one. Roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave the emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincana.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normal where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. excuse, excuse me. Pardon me.